0: Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon Wurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This
1: is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am.
0: Hello and good morning. This is 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It's the 10th of June, and today in the studio, you're listening to Jess. Rob. And I'd win. Sorry (laughs) just for leaving that hanging there. (laughs) We always, we're always like, who's next? We should probably establish an order, but that's okay.
1: Yeah, it's a bit, that's a bit metaphor on for our, our listeners
2: right now. dramatic pause makes it sound like like a tv show when they're introducing characters and there's like little sequences in between of like who's who's coming today
1: think of hairspray you know i'm stacy ronald <laughs> jeffrey donald like that that's sort of like vocal. really yeah i don't know we might um, have to is, we... how, how are
0: we all this week though anything interesting or exciting
2: happening in your lives for me it's really been a week of of learning like in in light of black lives matter i've been really taking the time to read much more widely and listen to lots of podcasts and just sort of obviously it's a position of privilege to to research and read about discrimination rather than experience it but i think that's been a really um important thing for me in this past week so i've been reading through growing up aboriginal in australia which is a really excellent book if if people haven't read it um and it's it's just been really useful in hearing from people's perspectives about the complexities and challenges of that many aboriginal pace, people un, many aboriginal people face in understanding their own identity particularly when they're being pulled between different cultures and and many of them don't even have a a grounding uh geographically to base themselves through or culturally and so that's just been um really powerful to read through this week mm. um yeah.
1: Yeah, we'll be touching on the Black Lives, uh, movement in alternative news because it has just dominated this week so much. And quite rightly, I mean, the, the severed disconnection and disenfranchisement, I won't go into huge details here, but I, I agree, Rob. It's been, a, I think it's been a big week of reflection and sitting with these emotions. And again, we, all three of us speak from positions of privilege. So it's, it's been a bit of a, it's been an important week to learn how to sit with uh, you know, being an ally and listening to community and putting aside, you know, priorities that we usually put over through privileged systems, um, to really just sit with what, what's happening. And I mean, just watching the momentum of the movement as well has been amazing. So I've spent the week, yeah, f- following and listening to some new speakers, expanding my horizons a bit with that. Uh, and also just, uh, I suppose, just taking things a little bit slower so you have the time. Cause I mean, we get so distracted with, you know, shopping or what we need to do today or the, the grocery list, like all these sorts of, you know, just usual functioning. So I think this week it's been like slow down, take more time for reflection, take more time for constructive thinking, you know, development mm-hmm. of your ideas and your conceptions. So I, I don't know, that's kind of, it's been, it's been a very hazy week
0: mm-hmm. all up. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's been, and also i uh, <laughs> It's been phenomenal and incredibly heartwarming to see so many communities, internationally and domestically at home, coming together for such an important movement. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading and trying to educate myself, and you know, um, work on my, you know, education in this sort of issue that um, I think we all really need to work on. And a little bit cheesy, um, but I was looking. I'm not sure whether you've heard of Margaret Mead. She's an anthropologist, and I was doing some reading on her. And when a student asked her, um, "What is the earliest sign of civilization?", um, they expected like the answer to be a clay pot, a clay pot, or some sort of like utensil or that sort of nature. But she replied with a healed femur. Um, healed femurs takes weeks to recover. Mar- Margaret Mead put it in a way that, and explained it that. There's no healed femurs found when that intertwined into that mindset of being survival of the fittest. And so this first sign of civilization is actually compassion seen in a healed femur. It's a quite deep and um, philosophical sort of idea, but I just thought it was really heartwarming and it really sort of put into perspective just where civilization can go when we do use compassion.
1: So it's, it's kind of stating that you have a civilization when you have the space for someone to heal from a femur injury, because that's such a debilitating thing. So you have to have the resources, the provision, and as you said, the community compassion to actually support that individual through their healing process. Is that kind of where that uh,
2: yeah, well, there's a, there's a book that's come out recently called Human Kind and the, the author's proposition is that the reasons why humans have survived as a species is because they care and trust and can be kind to each other. And that's actually the key advantage of let us groan rather than everyone being very
1: sort of. You mean it's not extractive exploitive wealth? <laughs> oh, where? Oh my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> the economy's been lying to me all this time. <laughs>
2: this idea of um how we can trust each other like the fact that we are one of the few animals that blush that that's actually a really important thing so it means that we have to be able to be trusting each other and tell the truth to each other and rather than keeping all this knowledge to ourselves we we share that knowledge with others and that's that's why we've come this far, but hopefully could come much further or will we'll go much further.
1: Mm. That definitely is my argument. When other people are like, you know, oh, why are you pushing for change? Or like, you know, these sort of weird pseudo arguments where they're just like, oh, there's some things that are innate to human nature. And it's like, no, 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 we can get smarter. (laughs) We can get more compassionate. (laughs) We have the ability to do (laughs) so.
2: I guess the way I kind of deflect is saying, well, not deflect, respond is – society is always it's a working it's a working system it's a it's a work in progress like what it is now is not a finite goal obviously everything is is we're testing and we're still figuring out what is the best thing for society and you know obviously equality is, is a huge part of that but that's we're still we're still learning
0: mm. Mm. I guess on mm. um, that note do you want to get should we get into what's on the show this week
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, so I had a great interview with Virginia Marshall. So she's a, um academic based at ANU. And so she's an Indigenous woman herself. And so she was speaking about the water management of the Murray-Darling system and how there's a real need for a reform, not just a revision, of the way that it's managed, and particularly thinking about the impact that existing management has had on many Indigenous communities, both sort of physically in terms of access to water, but also to do with cultural identity, with so many communities really defining themselves and needing the the physical landscape to, to understand themselves and their community. And so she was speaking about how we can integrate more Aboriginal knowledge into the way that we manage water, but also really prioritising their interests um, and also, by nature, the, the ecological interests of the Murray-Darling itself. So that was a, a really great interview, so I'm really excited to, to share that later.
0: Yeah, very exciting. I also spoke to... I got an interview this week. Um, I spoke to Rachel Sara. She is an artist, designer and activist from Grand Grand Country. She uses her artwork to educate and share aboriginal culture and its evolution and she's incredibly um, predominant online so she often in her artwork she often explores themes of society's perceptions of what aboriginal art and identity actually is so today we'll be playing our conversation about indigenous businesses and the push to continue to bring awareness to continue indigenous uh, to the continual indigenous hardships
2: great great yeah. Well, not
0: Sounds very exciting, but I guess we'll get into alternative news.
3: Some folks know about
1: Okay, this week on alternative news, we've got a few stories. But first off, I wanted to jump in to the Station Appeal, which is an annual fundraiser, basically, that 3CR runs every year to keep our community organisation going. Now, as you probably know, we are a completely grassroots radio station. We are entirely run by about 400 volunteers and about five staff. So it's an absolutely massive organisation, movement, movement, continually growing thing and as such there every year we ask if you are listening if you if you do enjoy our content or use it to please chip in a certain amount or a financial amount into the back into the station to keep us going uh this obviously goes towards things like microphones computers keeping events running stalls held merchandise um as well as like voices on air i think one of the biggest misconceptions is that you know these things get pushed into like um brochures or, or letters or propaganda. But no, it, 3CR, the, the money always does go back, does go back to the shows and ensuring that the volunteers have the space to platform their important perspectives. I know I've been a subscriber for the last three years and every year I try to find, you know, a certain amount to put towards the station because I definitely believe that 3CR provides content that you get nowhere else. And I suppose going especially into alternative news just now, like, we don't get this sort of sideways perspective anywhere else. You don't get the sort of community conversation anywhere else. Everything else is deeply commercial and deeply financialized. So, those, that's going to be my first little kind of prompt to Station Appeal. I definitely suggest if viewers are interested, they can head to 3CR's website, uh, where there is a Station Appeal page. However, there is also a uh, Give Now cause so that's givenow.com.au/cause 442 I'll repeat that that's givenow.com.au/cause 442 which will take you to the 3CR community radio federation donations fund and yeah it, it it really just goes back into funding the community so a big part of this station is also voices on air are your voices on on air they are your community interests this is a complete two way system unlike again, any other station I've really interacted with. So I definitely suggest if you are interested in providing, you know, keeping listening to the airwaves to, to providing us with support, that would be a wonderful thing that you could get involved with this month. Um, I'll now stop pushing it and go on to (laughs) the rest of my stories. Uh, Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the powerful black lives matter movement um, that we have seen ripple onto our streets in the past week. I know we did mention it in our introduction Uh, And so instead of speaking and taking up space, I want to direct you to some key touch points that I've been, that I've been listening through throughout the week um, that you might also be interested in. And I'm going to rattle off a few names here. They will also be in the rundown for people to access a bit easier. So in America, some grassroots activists I've been following are Brandon, Carl Goodman, Giselle Bahamun, and Yves Dropper. Uh, And for Melbourne Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, I recommend to any listener who has not yet, kind of ingratiated themselves with this group this group are the people behind the rallies that we saw in melbourne and one of the most powerful grassroots movements in victoria uh it's also worth worth reiterating that throughout this phase especially with the protests on saturdays and the, the massive debate around whether you should go attend or not something that is ongoing within this movement is the pay the rent scheme and a lot of first nations organizers have highlighted that whilst it's great to show up for the march on the day, whilst it's great to continue advocacy in your personal spaces and conversations, reparations are something that is ongoing. And uh, I think we all need to be part of the kind of solution to making sure we're paying the rent. So we'll also include a list of different first nations organizations that you can uh, send money towards. And I think something that's also really key with this and the station appeal is we are not asking for everything uh, a lot of 3CR community listeners, and this has been redirected to me throughout countless radiothons, are some of the most giving people around, some of the most compassionate, and especially uh, those who cannot necessarily afford it are sometimes the most giving. So with Pay the Rent and the Station Appeal, we are asking for what you can afford and what you are able and f- freely able to give. Um, and I think that's a big misconception with Pay the Rent. It is everyone chips in to feed back into the community to make sure people who need the support are getting the support. Uh, also, there was a wonderful 3CR broadcast of the Black Lives Matter rally in Melbourne on Saturday, and you can access that on our website or Tuesday or Thursday breakfast. So I also thought I'd give that a shout out before getting into other stories. Now, getting into this week, we've seen a few interesting developments in the COVID, government-led COVID response, and I'm talking at a federal level. So, I mean, I don't know about you, Rob or Jess, apart from the gobsmacking announcement that the government is planning to get the economy back on its feet through $25,000 grants to first home owners and renovators. Uh, There's been a few other revelations. Now touching on that first one, it's pretty problematic because leading up to the COVID-19 response and government response, there has been a lot of proposals for things like investment to go into community housing and public infrastructure. Instead, it's kind of depressing to see yet another business approach to grants and, and federal funding with this idea of private grants being handed out to people who are already maybe in that more financially stable position rather than trickling down or going to you know the people who are in the poor situations in our society. Additionally there has been greater calls for transparency over the National COVID-19 Coordination Commission which is operating these decisions, such as these grants. This is the task force dedicated to the economic response, and it's been largely led by ScoMo and his business pals. Now, this was critiqued back when it started in, I believe, March or May, I might be <laughs> one of the M's, um, for being basically full of fossil fuel heads. And we've watched as the as under the crisis um, and the s- subsequent months, environmental protections have been massively stripped away. Over the last week, we've been told that uh, Australia's recovery or economic plan for recovery will mean a lot of gas and investment into gas. And this comes from the commission chair, who is Neville Power, who is connected to Australian energy and mining industries uh, through his deputy chairman of Strike Energy uh, Incorporated, as well as the managing director for the CEO of Fortescue Metals Group massive fossil fuel bodies in australia this has been called out as being a huge compromise <laughs> um it's compromised yeah a huge compromise of basically integrity and the fact that the, the body lacks any accountability or transparency unlike bodies in new zealand is of growing concern so i definitely suggest as we see more of you know what a post-COVID-19 response is going to be, especially with this fossil fuel heavy focus uh, for people to get on the calls and, you know, really start pressuring their local MPs away from it. Another piece of legislation in the works that was interesting is an increased, or a proposal to increase scrutiny over foreign investment. So this comes under the banner of a national security concern with Um, increased attention towards foreign investment into Australian infrastructure being kind of disproportionate in how much it's intervening with Australian policy and potentially influencing it. So again, this will be... uh, Currently, there is very... A little accountability, uh, due to Australia's free trade agreements over the last decade and a lack of stripping away of protectionist policies, we really don't have much in the way of accountability for foreign investments. However, it does remain slightly dodgy being proposed by the liberal, by the coalition as, you know, justified under the all encompassing national security title, which we know is an expandable, um, and manipul- manipulatable uh, banner of theirs. This will give uh, government officials greater powers, such as allowing the treasurer to call in any investment before, during or after an acquisition for review, if it raises risks. And the Treasurer will also have a new last resort power, enabling them to apply or vary conditions of order order disposal of an investment where national security concerns emerge after approval. So it's an interesting story. We'll be watching it as it goes ahead, but it'll be interesting to see what this this law looks like in uh, application if it passes through. And that rounds out my alternative news. I'm sorry for a bit of a... (laughs) a bit of a dense alternative news um as we know this week nothing's happened simply and so it's worth taking the time to unpack it a bit deeper
2: yeah on your your first point about the the um the grants for renovations or or building the other thing that's really disappointing about that policy is that the conditions to be able to meet it is such a small margin that it's it's the analysis is really showing that it's a policy that's designed to look like something is happening without very much happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's disappointing to see. Um, when we've had interviews in the past, we have we had Jeff Hanmer, uh, a few weeks ago talking about how this is a really prime moment to invest in social housing. Um, particularly because it invests, it invests in local skills and local trade and local materials. And it really does support local economies whilst also addressing really critical social issues that haven't had enough investment in the past few decades. So yeah, no, I, I it was a bit disappointing that, that
1: it was a bit was disappointing, especially it. when um, a builder's builder's associations around the country came out and said, this is actually not an area that needs funding at the moment. Like personal renovation projects are unsurprisingly at an all time high with people at home and looking around their four walls. So it's, it's been a very, uh, Yeah, disappointing response and deeply concerning with, as I said, the lack of transparency for the group that's making these choices on Australia's behalf.
4: Do you need to renew your subscription, make a donation or pass on some information to a programmer?
5: We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03
3: 9419 8377.
4: Each weekday between 1 and 5 p.m., and talk to a staff member.
1: That's 03 9419 8377.
4: 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
2: Welcome back to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. So many of us would remember the scenes last year in the Murray-Darling where thousands of fish were starved from oxygen. It threw back into the spotlight an ongoing discussion on how water is managed in the Murray-Darling system. And so to help us understand the evolving situation further, on the line we have Virginia Marshall. Virginia is a Wadri Niemba woman and is a practising lawyer, educator and writer. She is the inaugural Indigenous postdoctoral fellow with the Schools of Regulation and Global Governance as well as the Fenner School of the Environment and Society of the Australian National University. Virginia, welcome to the show.
4: Oh, hi. Welcome to everyone out there and Yirudhu Marang in Wiradjuri.
2: So, in our current position, in our current situation, how vulnerable are our water systems?
4: Well, I think they're very vulnerable and I think, Most of us in our everyday lives um, only understand that vulnerability when we've been through drought, um, as we um, do off and on over many years. And once the rain's back, um, many people out there just forget the terrible um, situations that we've actually experienced. It's a bit much for everyone to understand in an urban area, I guess, but um, you know, the, the the situation that we've experienced too with the fires is exactly the same as water. Um, we have ex, ex, really experienced such intense fires and um, loss, personal loss, um, a loss of property, lives. It's been rather devastating and we've felt that here where we are. And and, and I think that vulnerability really makes us think very carefully. I think this is what covid 19s done. Uh, for a lot of us that just go and have busy lives and don't have time or don't make time for friends or or other people that we really care about and things that we want to care about and want to do. But COVID's really brought us into that um, space where we've got to think about our relationships differently. Um, and that means also to the environment. And, you know, recently now we've had um, this extraordinary situation in Australia and America and across the world where... Uh, The shocking tragedy and the death of one person has now elevated the discussion uh, about Black Lives Matter. So it really is very interesting to see what it takes for us to really uh, be on our knees, literally, and to say, you know, we need to do things differently. And water is really one of those
2: so what I guess for people who perhaps aren't aware of the the significance of the water supply what's at stake if this isn't managed properly
4: Well for example in the Murray Darling basin region you know if it's not mm-hmm. managed properly uh, we basically then have low flows or no flows uh we have an extraordinary amount of uh industry and and um uh water users in the Murray Darling basin for example um, that one could really say there are too many users um, in that small area. And, of course, Aboriginal people are not really getting a foot in the door um, to that use. So uh, that's a, a, an extremely vulnerable situation. You've got high unemployment in those areas of the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, the only thing that's really happened um, that's really exposed uh, the frailties and uh, the other um, sordid details with the Murray-Darling Basin is um, the Royal Commission's report into South Australia uh, on the Murray-Darling Basin by Brett Walker Senior Counsel and also um, the number of inquiries and also um, the situation of really saying, you know, we, we don't have any more water, so how are we going to function? Not only are we not going to have water for domestic use, but for industry. But then when the water comes again, we're talking about harvesting floodwater and we're talking about using groundwater for mining, um, as you can see in Adani. Um, We've got one of the, uh, I think, last uh, desert oasis uh, in the world. Uh, There's an extraordinary area of water, but yet we're going to use that uh, for mining. Uh, And we've just heard yesterday that the Bargo River and the Nepean River are absolutely full of chemicals, Um, and uranium is one of those uh, as well as arsenic. So, you know, it really defies belief that we can keep on using waterways, as they did in the convict days. They used to, and I've read them when I did my doctoral thesis on water, they threw animals, they, they threw belongings and rubbish in waterways, but that's what we're doing today, and it's 2020. Yeah, And I think most of us really say why, you know, so in an urban area, I guess we you would pretty much put a parallel to people throwing their rubbish out of the car window, you know, throwing the rubbish. If there's not a bin, we'll just leave it on the, on the roadside. And we saw that, you know, when people were leaving mattresses on the roadside and, you know, garbage that they'd filled up during the week, you know, that's the mentality we still have with water and, you know, we know as human beings that we need water, not only to drink, um, but for the other purposes uh, to really ensure that we've got an environment that um, encourages the animals and encourages um, plants and, and and trees to grow. You know, just having a, a, an arid um, continent, which we are really looming towards as far as climate change is going, um, that's the future that we're looking at. So what will it take to make us change our ways? And that's really what we're talking about.
2: It's clear that the the current policies and systems set up are not working, given the fact that we're still doing the same damaging actions and activities. So do you think that a revision of these current systems is enough or does it need a complete reform and overhaul?
4: Yeah, well, I think it needs a complete overhaul. And I think this is... uh, uh, certainly one of the points that um, the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission in South Australia pointed out is, you know, this, the type of science that they were using in the Murray-Darling Basin to identify what sort of water um, uh, should be measured and, and what that should represent was anything that begins with a 2, you know, 2,700, 2,900. How ridiculous is that? You know, why do we not use the best available science and then also use the best available Indigenous science? You know, that's what we're talking about. Um, We're leaving a generation of young people with the idea that not only will they not be able to get into the housing market, um, not only will they not be able to follow the jobs that they really had the ambition or the desire to in the future, and this is COVID-19, but we're also saying, by the way, you're not going to have any water in the future either because we've either sold it off to overseas corporations for their use here. Um, we're bottling extraordinary amounts of bottled water where we actually just should know that the companies are making hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on selling us a variety of bottled water. But that water comes from somewhere. You have to extract it from either places in Australia, Mangrove Mountain, um, the Southern Highlands, the extractions that's happening there, that's not an endless um, uh, water water source. It's finite. So we've got to ask ourselves, do we really want to drink bottled water? Because groundwater is so essential. So there are a lot of questions we've got to face. It's very much like the, the experiences that we had with drought recently and with fire. We've got to really be um, conscious that this is what we're looking at. This is what young people are looking at.
2: And seemingly we're not going to really answer those questions until we're kind of faced with the last hour of when it's at its most pressing. That seems to be the way that it's progressing.
4: That's right.
2: What in particular has been the impact of this water mismanagement, particularly on Aboriginal communities?
4: Well, we've seen this, um, especially in the news, which is not as constant as it should be, but it throws a light that a lot of Aboriginal communities were uh, completely without water. and they uh, were devastated because they needed to wash their children. They needed to drink the water, and these are places that normally have water. Um, and the drought um, really magnifies these issues. But it's not only that. That's the that's the functional, the utility um, purpose of water. But Aboriginal people know that um, we have an identity with those water spaces, with those waterscapes. So our very identity is linked with water. You know, if you're from freshwater country or saltwater country, you need to be part and parcel of that environment. That's who you are. Um, You know, if if you're if you've got uh, totems that are from dolphin country, you know, or whale, um, that's where your knowing your being who you are um, really um, describes the journey that not only that your family, your ancestors have prepared for you, but it also gives you an idea of why you need that water in your life. So it's, it's, it's an identity issue as well. It's the Aboriginal knowledge of those issues, the sharing and transmission of knowledge. Uh, It's a whole package. So it's not just the utility of water only. That's a huge issue but it's also um, really going to people's identity. And that's what we need to know. And that that's the saddest part about all of this, is that a lot of kids um, really, you know, when they go down and they're taught about, you know, rainbow serpents and, and other creation stories of country all over Australia, um, they're seeing that not only are we contaminating the sites, and that's apparent. We've just seen one the other day blown up by a mining company. Uh, where 46,000 years of history just went up in in a, in a puff of um, smoke from that explosion. So also we're not really valuing Aboriginal um, sites yeah. and artifacts. But, you know, this goes again to are we valuing Aboriginal people? Are we valuing the knowledge that's there? And it's a, it's Australia's history too. So why is it that we really see it as disposable? Uh, and that's how we're viewing water water use and this is what's impacting on indigenous communities.
2: And I imagine also for many people who you say are connected to those landscapes, it's by having it uh, eroded away it's really making it difficult to sort of feel a connection to a landscape or to an identity given that they're already pulled in so many different directions they don't actually have an anchor for their for their main kind of uh, community anymore it's it's tragic,
4: yeah, um, it is tragic.
2: I guess looking forward, you're part of a group that's proposing a water brief called uh, Water Reform for All. And central to this is really initiating a national conversation on water management that really includes First Nations values and knowledge of the land. What does an integration of this knowledge and values look like to you?
4: Well, I think that's a time that we're all looking for now, and, and especially in the last week, this is really... Um, come to the fore, you know, what sort of human race do we want to be? Um, do we want to continue to hold the values? And some of those values aren't particularly um, positive uh, and certainly won't, won't act out as positive for other human beings. So I think it, it looks like um, a national discussion that really is very honest about um, how much available water we have, uh, how we value that water. And also, for the first time, how are Indigenous peoples actually going to be engaged and involved? Um, and it's not just mere consultation, and we've we've heard those complaints around the world by Indigenous groups. Uh, it's actually really saying, um, I'm listening and we need your consent to go forward. Um, because we've seen the furor that happened with Native Title when Mabo came out. Um, There was a lot of um, negative um, stereotypes that were thrown out there that people would lose their freehold land. Um, They wouldn't be able to go um, and enjoy life the way that they had prior to the recognition of um, Mabo. So I think this is what we've got to say is that what it's going to look like is a better future for everyone where Indigenous peoples are being respected um, their participation in management and on, on water sites is also going to be included because uh, very often those things are done without um, the full consent of Aboriginal people or the full knowledge. Um, so that's what this bigger future looks like. It's actually engagement and involvement because we shouldn't just think of Aboriginal peoples as just the NAIDOC week celebration or reconciliation week. Oh, well, that's finished now. We've, we've done with that last week. Um, there's been a lot of great things said, but, you know, we're now moving on to the next week after. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we should individually really try and understand that we've got the oldest living culture in the world and we should really be so happy to actually share everything in this country, not only our time, our listening, but, you know, not begrudge Aboriginal peoples for really um, having the ability to make decisions about their own country, you know, that's really important. And and I think that this is something that we really see out of this water reform for all is a bigger picture and a better picture. And that's what we're all hoping now that will come out of COVID-19 and um, out of the, the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, that really people start and think about the positive things that we can do and improve this incredibly beautiful earth.
2: Mm what is some of the knowledge that you think has been lost that you would like to see more ingrained into the way that a a lot of water systems are managed and valued?
4: Yeah. Well, I think after um, the Howard government decided that economic water use was the best use of water and they dumped the riparian um, use of water, which is the one that we inherited when um, the common law came to Australia. I think that, Um, that view of the world um, needs to change. And we need to really go back again to where the National Water Commission was dismantled. That was actually then um, a really important body because it provided reports on the states and territories and also the Commonwealth, on the Murray-Darling Basin, for example. And it told us the state of affairs, you know, whether those um, states or territories were honouring not only non-Aboriginal water use, but whether they were progressing in any way for Aboriginal peoples with water, water issues. So we don't have a National Water Commission. We didn't have one with an Indigenous unit, so we definitely need to have a revamped National Water Commission. Um, We only have the Productivity Commission that has all the files from the previous National Water Commission there. Um, But, you know, it's only um, in the Productivity Commission looking through the lens of economy you know, an economic use. And and water is much broader than that, as we know. Um, So those views aren't really being um, valued as they could. Um, And I think that we need to also um, make sure that we have oversight bodies. You know, when we take the Water Act, for example, the Commonwealth one of 2007 and and, um, also 2008, we look at those acts and we go, well, where's the human rights in water? Because uh, apparently the United Nations says that, uh, the right to water is a human right, but yet we have legislation that doesn't even acknowledge that. Mm. It has a schedule, for example, in 2007 um, act that says that uh, we have a, a number of um, conventions and protections for animals and birds, but we don't have in there the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People or the Rights of Children, the Rights of Biodiversity. You know, those are sort of things that we need in our water legislation that protects, us. It protects that source for the next generation. Um, just having plants and animals in the world is not uh, the way Aboriginal people see the world. It has to have human beings and plants and animals in that world. You know, it, it's, it's really a cooperative relationship and, and we need each other. And that's what I don't see in the legislation. And I talked about that quite at length in different articles that I've written, but also in my doctoral thesis, you know, those are the things that we need to think about. We need to really have um, oversight bodies. We need to be valuing water in a different way. We shouldn't be allowing extraction of of groundwater for mining at all. Um, we, We shouldn't be using water as if it meant nothing to us. I think that's what we've got to value. And I think that's what, Again, I say that parallel to the fires. That's why a lot of people really understand, you know, is is valuing um, the insight, not only of Indigenous fire knowledge, which we've really come to understand better in the press um, and by um, the public um, getting that uh, view of Indigenous um, cool burns, for example. So I think that's what we've got to do is really take on board Indigenous water knowledge, how we value it, why we value it, and, you know, you've just got to look through Bill Gamage's work from ANU where he went into the archives and a bit like Bruce Pascoe did with his, um, Dark Emu. You're looking at those records saying this was a pristine, uh, country in so many ways. The water was fresh. You could drink from the Yarra, right? Um, you could drink from all of those beautiful streams and creeks, but you know, two, over 200 years, look at it, you know. Um, you wouldn't dare go and drink in some of the, the rivers, um that you'd go and camp near today. So. Oh, yeah. Swim in. <laughs> yeah, and you don't want to swim in it. You know, even last night, Bargo and Nepean River in New South Wales. Um, you know, with all those toxic, um chemicals, uh, yeah, what's, what's going to be happening in the future is that we've just, again, resorted to the way that we did in those convict days of just looking at it as a dumping ground, you know?
2: Finishing up, what are some concrete ways that community-based adaptation, particularly from Indigenous communities, can be integrated into improved water governance arrangements?
4: Yeah, well, water governance arrangements are really important. It's, it's really only going at a snail pace um, nationally. But I think the most important thing is really having uh, Indigenous peoples right front and centre of any discussion. So whether it's in your local council area or your state or territory, um, if you're sitting at the table, and I've I've done this also in different areas of climate change and and discussions on water, if there are not Aboriginal people sitting there, um, you need to decide whether you actually want to continue that conversation with that particular group. Because we need to have everybody there, but particularly Indigenous people, Indigenous traditional owners, And other communities that really um, want to really move this along. So I think the other thing is we need to understand that Indigenous water knowledge is ever-present, and it's it's a wisdom that really tells you how to actually use that water. Um, And we know this because when we saw that fish kill, it was only the fish that were dying, which was a disgrace nationally. But, you know, those Murray cod and native fish are also fish, fish species that are also inherently a part of that creation story for communities and the fish traps and all of those, um, cultural areas. It, it's an incredibly important, um, space for Aboriginal people and it should be for every non-Indigenous person. We have an incredible history here to share and like we have with the, um, fire farming, we want to be able to share it with you, but it needs to be a healthy relationship where we're just not being bundled off and having that knowledge taken and then you walk away. You know, it needs to be a healthy, um, good, solid foundation for a relationship. And I think that's what we don't have at the moment. There are there are some communities out there in Australia that are really trying hard, but it's not nationally coordinated because now, the federal government and other governments just really haven't made that space available.
2: Virginia, thank you so much. And as you say, I really do hope that this moment of COVID and as you say, Black Lives Matter as well will be a, an initiator to really reconsider how our water systems are managed and really not just sort of, sort of blase community consultation, but really listening and integrating and working with Indigenous communities in this space. So thank you for coming onto the show. Yeah,
4: pleasure. Pleasure. Mandanguo. Exhibiting 300 artworks by
3: 286 Indigenous artists currently in or recently released from prison in
4: Victoria, Confined 11 serves as a strong visual metaphor for the over-representation of First Nations Australians in the criminal justice system. This year,
3: The Torch presents the annual Confined Exhibition online at thetorch.org.au. All artworks are for sale, and 100% of the sale price goes directly
1: to the artist. Help us paint a brighter future. Head to thetorch.org.au from May the 14th to explore Confined 11, a
3: 3CR supporter.
2: Welcome back to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now, moving into to Tram Thoughts, before kind of jumping into the, the discussion of what I actually want to talk about today, I wanted to share a story of a really fascinating designer in the, he's based in the Netherlands. So his name's Roel, and he is part of this art collective called Casco Land, which is very much on the ground, grassroots kind of community focused art. And so it was following the 2008 recession where obviously much of Europe was in a bit of a financial turmoil. And so there was a neighbourhood in Amsterdam, which at the time was voted the worst neighbourhood in Amsterdam. So that was in terms of high rates of crime, lower levels of education, various other challenges that were going on in the community. And it also had a high migrant population as well. And so following that uh sort of announcements to put it one way, the the council decided to experiment given that funding was really tight. And I thought, let's just put a designer in there for six months and, and see what happens. And over that period and in the years after, he and Casco Land, which he's been involved with, has actually really significantly transformed the community through really small, precise, but well designed ideas so what the first one of the first things that he noticed was how a lot of school students were always particularly tired in school and of course that affects uh, concentration in class and then getting good grades and then being able to get a job and sort of it kind of it's like a leaky pipeline or it kind of it keeps going up the the sort of throughout their lives and so the reason he found that was an issue is because a lot of these communities were migrants communities and so it's very customary that when a guest or a family friend stays over that they sleep in the kid's bed the kid sleeps on the floor kid gets a poor sleep and that you know then everything kind of cycles from there and so he just thought of the idea or caskalan thought of the idea of let's just have a big communal guest house that you know, the guests can stay there, the kids can sleep in the bed and it solves the issue. And then that essentially solves that issue of kids not getting enough sleep. And that led to them better education and better for their outcomes. And so the reason I tell this story, and actually, sorry, 10 years after that, he's still working in that community and it's been so successful. There are all these wonderful initiatives. And if you want to have a read, look up Casco land and you'll find their website and there's all these wonderful little initiatives that they've done. But the reason I tell this story is that it's a really, it's an example of how a really simple solution can solve a problem. And often we kind of overcomplicate problems with more technology, more investment, sort of complex policies when really sometimes the solutions can be incredibly cost-effective if they're well-designed, well-researched, precise, and actually address the root of an issue. And so the thing that I've been sort of toying on my mind is that we're thinking about like, how do we address climate change as one of the defining issues of this century. And so it came across recently that there's a new book that's coming out at the end of this year by the French engineer, Philippe who is releasing a book called the age of low tech towards a technologically sustainable civilization. And so I think, this is a really interesting book, which I'm looking forward to reading, but I think might mark a sort of movement that's starting to emerge, which is we live in this world of techno solutionism where we believe the world's technologies has to be solved through technology. Um, and I would say, yes, some technologies, uh, do need to be present to solve challenges, but not for everything, which is kind of the, the mindset that we have in society. And so we're obsessed with things like, I don't know, driverless cars, smart cities, smart fridges, like chips and things and everything. Also renewable energies. Yet all these technologies rely on really limited, finite materials and resources. And this kind of brings problems down the track. For example, like Sure, we're obsessed with data and things being on the cloud and that, say, paper or various other things. But then there's the copious amount of electricity that consumes. And now we're actually having buildings and cities purely for data towers. And the other thing that he raises is how renewables themselves are, in fact, not renewable things. And this book will argue that the mass deployment of renewable technologies, although incredibly important, they're actually incompatible with the amount of physical materials on the earth. And so as such, he's really advocating for the importance of needing to low tech our world, really look to simpler designs and ideas and really think about reusability and recycling and whether something actually has to have electricity to, to work well. And so I guess I wanted to ask amongst that very long ramble that I just did. um, What to you would a, a low tech future look like? Or what would you like to see?
1: It's really funny you bring this up, Rob, because this is literally my uh, assignment this week that I'm focusing on. <laughs> that was <laughs> is, not
2: planned, I promise. <laughs> no,
1: that's, I mean, it's great. I've got some talking points, but decarbonization and this idea, I think you're right. The modern world is obsessed with... Innovation and the neoliberal, like the market structure, and so we assume through that that all of our solutions are going to be through that market apparatus or through investment into new technologies. And technology, new technologies, kind of become like this savior of the climate crisis. You know, this is the way we're going to drag ourselves out. Is someone will have a brilliant idea and will revolutionise the way we do blah and blah and blah. But the problem is, it's ultimately faith based, and there's no certainties. The what ifs are what ifs and i think it really shows up a system which is more committed to dreaming than it is to as you said doing those simple solutions those mm. basic insights um i think also something that like for me a low tech future what it would look like you got to look at decarbonization and decolonization and the intersection between those two concepts i mean if we look at growth and development they are they are imaginary Conceptions that capitalism really thrive on, you know, that idea of growth, of continual growth, of continual progress. And I've been reading a lot of decolonization scholars this week who have been talking about decolonization economics and their whole point is we gotta look at the heart of what we value and kind of challenge these imaginary beliefs of progress and growth and instead replace them with ideas of Sustainability of creativity of spirituality of connection with the land of respect for the land. And like, I, I just think within this conversation, it's so important. I mean, uh, I've got um, one book here called degrowth of that vocabulary for the new era, which is talking on this, this issue and its whole point is it says we have to decolonize our imaginary to really change the world before the change of the world condemns us. And I think that summarizes really well. Like any low tech future really needs to think about how we have like First Nations people have traditional practices which have worked for thousands of years in a low tech society or, you know, a, a classified by international standards, low tech society. Um, and, and how it worked really well for them in, in sustaining themselves, themselves and the land. So I suppose with the low tech society, I do see a re- revision back to those practices that we already have there. And it's kind of funny because it's like the antithesis of innovation. It's like, instead of, <laughs> instead of needing to progress and continue our imaginary consciousness, we need to stretch back and maybe pick up a few lessons that we lost along the way, or we should better say oppressed along the way.
0: Yeah. I'm along the mindset of that too. What you just said then. Um, I don't think we can have a low tech future with the mindset um, and the social structure that we have right now. This sort of, I think an easy simplified sort of model to bring it back to is the iPhone and how annually um, each year we wait and we wait for a new iPhone and we expect to throw out that and, you know, Pick up upgrade and, and get a new one and because we can't wait to find out and be innovative. And it's great and it's exciting, but really is it because we are being so wasteful and many of us have the mindset to want to be sustainable and to help the environment and to be along those lines with that morale, but with the society that we have been put into to think further and to branch out and to, obviously we want human, we want humankind to move forward as best as it can. But I think we have missed the point of being sustainable with those designs and I think it sort of leads to the question is is it perhaps possible or is it only possible for humans to stagnantly continue their progress like it's I think it's a question of whether Mm -hmm. it it's either progress or settling for something that is less wasteful um but more sustainable and I think that's a really interesting sort of idea and way of looking at it because we want progress but we also don't want to waste all this time resources effort and unsustainability um with trying to get there
2: i guess it's kind of picking what are the 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 really important things to sort of i guess innovate on like for example a lot of medical health uh, research is critically important um, but as you say the kind of the obsession for technologies which perhaps aren't they don't significantly increase the quality of life as much as say medical research or other kinds of technologies um, but yeah the other thing I really think is interesting about sort of like a low-tech kind of future is that it started to like I, I mentioned earlier this year there was a book that just came out which uh, was detailing a lot of First Nations people's construction methods with housing and how that relates to climate and really you obviously no technology in our current sense of that word, but were responsive and technologically kind of <laughs> innovative at that time for responding to that landscape. And those kind of lessons have been, yes, you say, learnt, uh, lost over time.
0: Was that book, what was the title of that book? Dark no, well.
2: so no, so it's not um located just for Australia. It's okay. um across the world. So it's yeah. covering stories all across the world. But I'll I'll send a link and put it
1: in the rundown. Yeah, because well. it did
0: remind me of um a book, sorry to interrupt, but it's it's called Dark Eat me Um can't remember his first name, his last name is Pasco, I'm pretty sure. Bruce Pasco. Bruce Pasco, nearly had it, had half of it. Um but it does touch on how um the Indigenous and uh, First Nation people did have a set agriculture and, um, ability to farm and, uh, yeah. Holistic
1: uh, land management skills. Yeah. And they Holistic did, and, you know, management.
0: that, that, um, the white people have said that they didn't and use that as an excuse. But yeah, that's a different topic, but also along those same lines. So maybe we can put that into the description also.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess we've kind of already started approaching this, this question, but I guess what are the, the issues or talent challenges that you, think that we do actually need technology for, that it is an important part of our society, or do you think it it doesn't need to be?
0: I think a massive topic for us right now is climate change. I think that's, that is the most important that I would see, um, and resource management. I think we can, if anything, um, to perhaps cancel out money, funding, and putting resources into other areas and putting it into somewhere that humanity needs to survive and to continue like the most important sort of issue of our generation, perhaps.
1: Yeah. I see a real big need for localized innovation Mm. and sort of responding again to those climate change and the way it's going to alter our our borders and global land masses. Literally. I see a really big need for greater land management conservation on the local level and led by a local response. Uh, I mean, you reference things like medical, Rob, and that's, that's something that I think, you know, you can always improve your knowledge-based systems and stuff like that. So I definitely think that's important. Techno- it, it's interesting because it's like, what point does it become silly? You're progressing an idea, you know, like the fact that our phones bend now, we've touched on this, but that, that's a point where I think you're like, you don't need to go further. But then again, a communication device, which is sustainable and you know, communal and accessible, I think, is something that would be really powerful to invest in. Uh, I think we're going to need to maybe have more advancements. This is, sounds weird, but more advancements in the way we spread our stories and our media. I think that's going to need to have a bit more of a revolution. Um, and yeah, it, it's exciting to see some technological advancements, things like um, the fact that they've found fungi which can eat plastic, and they're at the moment looking into technologies like get that up and running on a large scale, or, you know, some of the, yeah, some of the conservation technologies really excite me because it's like, it's looking at different ways and uh, to, to deal with our resources and our waste. And I think waste, especially, you know, um, Victoria's recently committed to a recycling initiative where it wants to move to a more circular economy. I'm all for that. That sounds really good. So I think that's kind of where my technology things lie, mm-hmm. I suppose.
2: Yeah. Well, I guess moving, moving further. So the pandemic has added, Another kind of interesting dimension to this discussion. And so I was reading an article this week and it was saying how COVID-19 is forecast to result in the biggest temporary drop in CO2 emissions. And so the estimates currently suggest that this year we'll see about a 5.5% reduction in emissions. And that's in comparison to 2019. Now, the thing that I flag is that the drop that we've seen from the pandemic is actually not enough that would be required to meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius requirements. So to reach the 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 restriction of an increased warming of only 1.5 degrees Celsius, we would have to reduce our emissions by 7.6% on year in comparison to the 5.5% that COVID-19 has caused. And so clearly, you know, despite the drops in air travel and commuting for most and many other parts of our lives, the the requirements are, are not being met. And so evidently, if we do want to live in a 1.5 degree Celsius world, other actions are going to have to be taken. Other sacrifices are going to have to be made. And we'll need to really reconsider how we use resources or the resources we have more carefully. So I guess to finish the, the tram thought on, and hopefully the, the renewable energy tram thought as well. Uh, what are the, the kinds of sacrifices to modern comforts that you would be willing to make to help us push over to 7.6%? I
1: suppose it's that question of what would I be willing to make versus what I'm going to have to make. <laughs> <laughs> True. Honestly, I guess what, where is it a point of still... force
2: versus volunteering?
1: We all, no, we, we all have this threshold, don't we? where like, we live our own very distractive individual lives. And at some point the climate crisis arguably already for many people has put a halt to that. And the question is, you know, people in positions of privilege, well, what, what, what are we doing to aid their recovery or or address the issue? Um, I think, I think there's going to be have to, there's going to be have, there's going to have to be a fundamental shift. And for me, I'd be very happy to sacrifice many things as long as there was a, In replacing in that is, would be a growth of community. So like, I think there's a real importance to get a lot more localized and to bring food production and water, you know, resource management as a a much more localized, you know, local community sort of, uh, initiative. I can't see that happening right now. And so it's hard for me to go, Oh, I'd, I'd give up electricity. I'd give up water because I couldn't, like you couldn't live. We've, we've made ourselves complicit and dependent on these systems. So I suppose something that I think I'd like to give, I, I think I've already come to terms with sacrificing is things like, um, I don't, I'm not getting a car. It's a personal choice to choose PTV or bicycles, even if it takes me two hours out of my journey, because that's something that I would like to sacrifice. Um, I'm not sacrifice. I'm sacrificing gifts, I suppose. Like I'm trying to move away from getting, um, you know, expecting gifts on my birthday or at least selecting it down to one thing that I want because mindless consumption just doesn't, doesn't enable anyone. Um, yeah, I, I suppose, that's the sort of stuff I'm, sa- I'm sacrificing. I'm sacrificing time, spending a lot of time trying to find, like, res- um, ethically ethical places to recycle my goods rather than just chucking them in the bin. Um, th- those are the sorts of considerations I'm starting to try and get into. And y- you're totally right, Rob. There are, there are going to be sacrifices needed. And I think that is a question that all of us, each of us have to confront. And I, I wonder to what extent we'll get an active choice in it. <laughs> yeah, well,
2: it's, is it, it's a choice now. It'll, it'll be a force later, so... Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely agree. I thinking about this question. Also, I think it's almost like you need an incentive, and that incentive needs to be that it's going to be a community feel that everyone is is chipping in together. As selfish as that seems, but if it's tiring seeing people not not being as perhaps mindful as you and your in in immediate social circle or that sort of thing. And you know, I am the same. I I've been shopping. Clothing-wise, ethically sustainable, reusable clothing, or using finding products to um, for food. food Food-wise, no plastics or Glad wrap or that sort of thing. I am guilty of having a car, but you know, if it was to be this, if the government was going to perhaps put money into helping transportation with suburbs out with out of the city to assist with that, you know, I would be all for that. Even though it's sort of against what we've been saying, but it's those sort of things i think i would also sort of be up for but i think it's the issue of it needs to be a, the entire community on board with being able to sacrifice because as, as as terrible as it sounds it needs to be that incentive of having that community feel with everybody chipping in and doing their part
1: i was going to add uh, i think i'd be very happy to sacrifice like lose if we could mo- all move to compost toilets and small like small Little. housing things like that yeah. Um, all moved to you know solar panels and having that kind of democratization of electricity, or perhaps Maybe even having more
0: veggie patches and like little yeah.
1: things like this yards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that all sounds. I think that those are all in my kind of <laughs> my my uh, scrapbook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love <Yeah>. that scrapbook. <laughs>
2: it was interesting. Like, I mean, this is not uh, to sort of to be the herald of progress progression. But um, in a lot of building sustainability ratings, they're now being quite innovative in what does it mean to be sustainable? So it's not necessarily just slapping solar panels on the roof. Sometimes it's actually giving everyone a blanket and they just heat themselves, like actually really simple, but that's becoming a thing that's being introduced into workplaces across the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, yes, you could say cynically, you have to rely on a rating to, to push that, but it still introduces the idea. And I'm kind of hoping there's just little things where we realize we don't need technology or or things that run on electricity to still create a good result. I mean, this is a very like minor example, but it brings me joy every day because I have a coffee every day is like I use it in AeroPress, which is just basically a tube with no electricity or anything just near a kettle. And you know that doesn't use any electricity in comparison to, to many other coffee machines. And it's just little things like that, which, you know, I can use it, as long as it, until it breaks, which it's just, a, it's just a tube. So it's probably going to last 50 years at last at least um, just like little things like that. So that's, that's what I'm hoping
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. we'll say, but thank you for joining on, on my, my tram, my tram thoughts this week.
3: You're listening to 3CR community radio at 5am on digital and online. 3CR radical radio.
2: Rachel Sarah is
0: an artist, designer, and activist from Garangarang country. Rachel uses her artwork to educate and share Aboriginal culture and its evolution. She often does this by exploring themes of society's perceptions of what Aboriginal art and identity is. Today we'll be chatting to Rachel about her art and how she has come to be an activist through it. Good morning, Rachel.
5: Morning, Jess. How are you?
0: Good. How are you?
5: I'm okay. Thank you.
0: Great. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Not a problem. First off, I'd love to know more about your art. Um, I am a big fan, so. But for the listeners, can you give us a brief description about how about what the kind of artwork you create is?
5: Yeah, so I guess I would probably label myself as a contemporary Aboriginal artist, and a lot of my work is tied to the experiences that I have as an Aboriginal woman. You know, walking into worlds. Um, I do like to call myself a mixed race artist as well so my dad's Aboriginal and my mum has English and Irish ancestry so um, a bit of a mixed bag of um, concoctions and dad's um, dad's dad's actually Italian as well but I kind of filter that through in contemporary Aboriginal art.
0: Awesome so how did your passion for art first start was it through your identity? Um
5: I would say that I've always been, I guess, a creative person. Art was really my favourite subject in school and I had a really good teacher that kind of um, empowered me to kind of express myself. Um, And then I kind of did that through university in a visual communication design degree. Um, But I think my passion from art really kind of excelled when I connected my culture to it. So I kind of felt like... I was giving it a voice rather than it just being something on a piece of paper or a canvas. Mm
0: -hmm. So, yeah, as you've just mentioned, um, cultures, you know, what really drives you through your art. Would you say that this is a big inspiration for your art or where does most of your inspiration come from in your pieces?
5: Yeah. Well, originally, um, I was working in agencies, so working with a lot of clients and my personal art practice kind of stemmed from, I guess a mindfulness activity I really needed to kind of um digest the commercial world and the expectations that were kind of placed on me um working in Indigenous agencies and for um clients who were looking for Indigenous art so my own personal art practice kind of evolved as you know this mindfulness practice but then it did really just become my voice in and I expressed myself in in ways that I couldn't find words for. And I guess through that, um, it did extend into my identity and it was kind of intrinsically linked to each other. So yeah, a bit of um, a mindful activity, but also just reacting and um, exposing myself to my experiences and digesting my innermost thoughts through my art.
0: Definitely. It's really interesting, um, especially how you said that you have found your voice through um, that mindfulness in creating your art. On the topic of finding your voice, um, can you say that this sort of same inspiration for art also flows through your work in activism?
5: Yeah, so I've only kind of really started labelling myself as that because it took me a long time to see the value of my voice in my art. And I guess my art really is a vehicle for, I guess, storytelling. And part of the activism is really retelling our history through a form that people are starting to listen to through the visual art. Um, A lot of the people who have come before me have really been preaching a lot of what I have said through my work. And it's just now that, you know, we're consuming art in our everyday and we're consuming design in everyday. So I think, it's really that powerful tool to storytell. So yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. Um, it's so as an Indigenous businesswoman and artist, um, have you? What have been your biggest struggles and frustrations working in a, so- a society that is formed on the structure of kind of disregarding minorities? Has that sort of have you? What are your biggest struggles with that sort of issue?
5: I think quite um broadly struggling with your own identity is a huge issue um in its own regard um and then kind of how that unfolds in the art scene um a lot of the work that I create in a contemporary way and digitally as well isn't what a lot of people perceive aboriginal art to be so it's really about reshaping our perception on what that work is so I guess um that would be one of the challenges to kind of just figure out and believe in who I am and my own voice and, you know, my experiences. But then I guess we're always working and walking in two worlds. And now a third world I like, third world I like to kind of talk about is this social media and internet world that can be used as a powerful tool, but it can also be really detrimental to our mind frames. And I guess the way that we perceive ourselves when you have, you know, everyone with an opinion behind a phone or a computer. Mm. Um, So I definitely think, yeah, just being strong sense of who I am and then applying that to my work is probably one of the major struggles.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that, Um, especially with your point before about using um, the visual imagery on social media. It seems to, in a lot of sort of fields, it's starting to appeal more to viewers and consumers on social media. We'll touch back on that in a second. Um, I just want to give some stats, So before this next question. Um, The Indigenous Procurement Policy, or the IPP, was designed to drive demand for Indigenous goods and services to grow the Indigenous business sector. Since July 2015, the IPP has generated $2.7 in economic activity for the Indigenous business sector. This has involved a total of roughly 19,500 contracts being awarded to 2,000-ish Indigenous businesses by the Commonwealth and their major suppliers. So even with these kinds of incentives and programs being put into place um, or trying to be put into place, What can you say about Indigenous and minority businesses struggling within a world of predominantly white favoured businesses here in Australia? Do you think there needs to be a lot more done by the Australian government to help minorities out?
5: Yeah, so I think that's, um, a really interesting and also complex question. I think procurement and Indigenous business procurement has really turned into a buzzword and a buzz statement. And I think that's closely tied to, um, reconciliation action plans there's this idea that if we're throwing money at businesses and indigenous businesses then essentially we can wash our hands and we're done but touching back onto I guess my commercial experiences and working with clients um, to develop artwork there's a lot of times when Um, through the government I'll be working on campaigns whether it's mental health whether it's domestic and family violence to really um, shine a light on statistics that we're facing in Indigenous communities but we're really not acknowledging the underlying theme of trauma and you know how the past is still affecting our our future so you can throw money at design and businesses but until we kind of restructure our thinking and break down the systematic and institutionalized racism, we're never going to meet targets and we're never going to see positive outcomes for our people. We're going to see campaigns that are super buzzy and marketable to begin with, and then they're going to fall through the cracks just like our voices. So um, I think there's a lot to be done through the government and it's not just a monetary process. It's about representation and a voice to parliament and, making sure that, you know, the communities that we're working with are reflected in the decision-making roles within all aspects, whether it's grassroots, whether it's government. Um, So yeah, representation and really community and First Nations led decision-making roles.
0: Yeah. I just, I will touch on one more monetary sort of government question before we go ahead with perhaps the other section of that question. Um, so the Australian government has given poor effort into providing um, help the, to the in- entertainment and arts community as a whole during this COVID period, um, especially with not allowing the industry job keeper. How has COVID affected you as a businesswoman during this period?
5: Um, I think another complex question as well, and I'd just like to make a note that the government also dismantled the um, art sector in policy so we no longer have an arts department or anything like that we're kind of thrown away to the side but when you see i guess covid and you see um this black lives matter campaign that's evolving the first people to kind of give their time and promote the cause are the artists whether it's through music whether it's through art whether it's through performance, we're the first ones to kind of step up and deliver that message. So I think to touch on COVID and me personally, um, I haven't necessarily been affected that much because I do have um, a very diverse, um, I guess, avenue through my business. And I've got a few different financial streams that come through, but um, for a lot of people and a lot of artists, if you're, face-to-face, a lot of my work's done online and I can do it, you know, on the computer. If you're a performer, if you're a singer, if you're um, producing concerts or anything like that, it is, it's, it's been huge. And I guess, I probably wouldn't be the best person to speak on that aspect of COVID because I personally haven't been affected that much.
0: Yeah, no, and we have, on this, on this our show, we have spoken to a few different people from the arts community about their personal opinion, and it is quite intriguing to see how others are obviously coping a little bit worse than others or better than others, and that's got a lot to do with social media and that sort of interaction. Um and this is a personal question, um, but why is the arts community so important to you?
5: I think the arts community, like I kind of touched on, um, it's really how I consume my information. So it's the community that's built around me and it's the support network that's built around me. Being an artist, you kind of look for support from like-minded people and when you see one of us struggling, it feels like we're all struggling because there is, you know, that really close knit community of the arts. But like I said, my whole, my whole existence, I think now is so closely tied to my identity and the fact that um, I am portraying and speaking through my work. So my messages are really filtering out through my work and my artwork and it's given a voice. So I guess art, is also appealing to a different way of thinking. We have really intellectual people and I guess we touch on what is and what isn't working from, you know, a government perspective. And we've always done it one way through policy and through, um, I guess that intellectual way of being, but we are seeing a lot of information being consumed by art. And if I, if we give power to the arts and the voices in the arts community, I think we can see some real change. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Talking about posting and that sort of thing on social media, you yourself posted a really interesting and thought-provoking post to your Instagram questioning the validity and use of Reconciliation Week. Reconciliation Week did just pass last week of May 27th to June 3rd. Um, Reading through the comments of the wider public and yourself, um, many hold the view that reconciliation implies a prior relationship between white and Indigenous Australians as a definite of reconciliation is inclined. So how do you think there could be a reshaping or perhaps a better idea altogether in regards to Reconciliation Week? Um,
5: I guess I'll start this question and say that Reconciliation Australia has done a great job in educating broader Australia Um, I do feel like there are some flaws in how we are labelling Reconciliation Week because, yes, I feel like a relationship needed to exist with First Nations people to begin with. I personally wouldn't see um, genocide and the destruction of whole bloodlines and language groups and customs as a relationship. I would see that as um, control and slavery um, and murder, but... I think the concept of reconciliation and the idea of educating people needs to be, needs to go beyond a week. And it needs to be, you know, implemented into our everyday life. We need to see this idea of um, truth telling and knowledge sharing and equality and equity in our everyday business and filtering through our everyday actions and our mindset. So I think it's been great that it's given awareness, but, I think it's kind of outgrown. I think we've outgrown its purpose and I think we need to think differently um, and work with the strengths of social media to kind of reshape how we perceive that Mm. week.
0: I guess we'll continue with this with the next question. Um, The current protests across America after the murder of African-American George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of complete police brutality, um, The event sparked international outrage and anger and awareness internationally for the black community. Australia has a massive problem with injustices um, continuously given to Indigenous Australians in all aspects of society. Recently, there have been more stories awakening um, and brought to awareness about police brutality against Indigenous persons and, of course, a lot of talk on statistics. Um, Something that caught my eye was bringing awareness that Indigenous Australians represent 3% of the population but make up 28% of the prison populations. Indigenous Australians are also 12 times more likely to be in prison than non-Indigenous and this is all in regard to our own legal and policing system. This is uh, quite an open-ended question. Um, Why do you think many parts of the population aren't aware of these stats and information and why do so many white Australians turn a blind eye? If that is the reason, do we can we put the blame on anyone for this lack of knowledge, or are we, or do we take responsibility for this?
5: Yeah. So big question there, and <laughs> um, I think you know there's several people that can you know unpack that, and I won't try to speak on behalf of everyone, but just my personal opinion here. If there's anyone to, I think there's a few things at play here. We are, we have neglected to truly and authentically tell the history of Australia and its birth through genocide. I think um, we have had some very marketable speeches. We've had Kevin Rudd um, with his sorry to the stolen generation. And we have also had um, Paul Keating in 1992 with the red fern speech Um, personally, 1992, I was born and I'm still hurting. I still feel the effects of, um, oppression of the past. And I think that is reflected on my identity struggle. Um, I think that these stories have always been here. And I think that our mainstream media have not reported adequately about them, and I guess to some in some regards, social media has been a benefit because we have seen um, America trending, and I guess I called out Australians um, knowing full well that I can see some of the people in my own personal circles who have always remained silent if not rejected any notion of me speaking up about Australia Day start sharing that Black Lives Matter. Um, which I called specifically these people out. Um, I would call them or label them as hypocrites um of our own narrative. But to answer your question, I think it's if I'm even answering your question because it is, I guess, very complex. Um I think there's a few things. There is people who um, neglect to understand what right privilege is and what benefiting from the systems that have always oppressed us, um, are doing. And then I also think there needs to be a blame on how the media report. Um, so every person has a privilege or a bias and depending on whether they look at that head on and sit down with it for a while, um, really depends on the, I guess, the narrative that we're seeing, um, that really probably didn't answer your question because I think I think if it did, we would have solved all the problems from now. But I think um, blame needs to be placed on a few different things. And most importantly, definitely the structures that have existed to oppress us.
0: Yeah, no, you, I completely agree with you with that question being incredibly difficult to answer because there is no right or wrong and no one has seemed to figure it out yet. Um yeah. but I, I personally agree, um that it's a, it's a, it's a societal structure and that it, it needs to be completely eradicated and rebuilt. Let's um, abolish it start again. Yeah, exactly right. We can't, yeah, it's, I think um, a lot of our listeners do agree 100%, um with that, but through this advocacy and hopefully it continues. Um, yeah, it's that's what we are aiming to get to. Um, talking about that advocacy hopefully continuing, um, there is a strong pattern among social media with a large debate attached to it on how to hold on and continue awareness and to not let this Black Lives Matter movement pass as a a quote a phase. Um, and examples, of course, even in Reconciliation Week that has just passed and wanting our communities to continue to support, learn and grow in knowledge of the Indigenous and minority communities after the week passes to aid the First Nation community or doing more than showing sol- solidarity with posting an image or quote on a social media platform in this Black Lives Matter movement. How would you recommend all Australians continue their support and social awareness throughout their lives in general, um, to continue or to become anti-racist?
5: You're really good at easy questions, aren't you? <laughs> I know.
0: I always just, I like to dig deep, you know. <laughs> yeah,
5: no. So I definitely think where we need to start is everyone needs to look within themselves first, and that can be quite a confronting realisation, potentially understanding the bias that you have or the privilege that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to touch on the fact that, although I identify as an Aboriginal woman, I I feel the benefits of white privilege through my skin tone. I can walk down the street and not be um, picked out of the crowd and identified as Aboriginal. So there's definitely some privilege there. So just understanding that Aboriginality is a way that you identify. It's not a skin colour. And understand that we are a nation of nations. So just because you've asked me a question and I may answer another, um, in one way doesn't mean that we will all feel that way. It's important to understand that, um, we are made up of many different communities, different language groups. And it's really important to understand what community, um, that you're kind of working and living on to really engage with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so even understanding I'm on Yaga, Yaga and Jugger country now. Um, but I connect back to growing, growing. So understanding where you are in, yeah. I guess, the Australian, um, landscape, but also just sitting with your bias and, um, being honest with yourself when you're confronted with something, unpacking, um, why you feel that way or why someone else might feel the way that they are. One thing I'm really noticing on social media is that's quite problematic is there's a, a lot of yes but there's a there's a lot of conversation around well we need to change Australia Day because we're hurting and where we don't celebrate on that day and there'll be a lot of people saying yes but it's a day to celebrate being a citizen that's very that's very divisive kind of language and I think equality and equity needs to exist because there was division so if we're neglecting the fact that division existed in the first place we're never going to move forward so really unpacking that um i think again it's quite a complex um question but just reaching out and surrounding yourself recurating your instagram feeds to have diverse voices recurating your personal circles to engage with diverse voices whether that's um You know, First Nations Australian, whether it's a male or female, regardless of your sexuality, this idea of oppression and Black Lives Matter needs to filter as a very common way of thinking, regardless of how someone identifies. It's just that I can speak on behalf of my own identity if that makes sense
0: no it does completely and sorry for those difficult questions but i'd just like to say a big thank you again for joining us today rachel um you can head to her website www.rachelsara.com um to check out uh, all of rachel's artwork thank you again for that rachel thanks jess